let's keep on target and we'll look at a little focus on um, debunking the so-called conflict thesis. The, the conflict thesis states that when science and theology have overlapping interests, and it seems that sometimes they do, science is at least more often than not in an incompatible conflict with theology. Wherein science is right and theology is wrong. So when there's an overlapping interest, science is in a conflict with theology and the science is right and the theology is wrong. That's the conflict thesis. But as a historian of science, Peter Harrison writes, a bit of a long quote, but a very useful, good one, he says, advocates of the conflict thesis hold that there has been a perennial, a long-lasting conflict between science and religion and that such conflict is inevitable. The thesis found its definitive formulation in the 19th century and despite powerful criticism by historians, is still commonly encountered in contemporary debates about science and religion. But the current consensus among historians is that the history of science-religion relations is too complex to fit into any simple pattern of unremitting conflict. The conflict thesis is conceptually simplistic and at odds with the historical evidence. Uh, I live fairly uh, near to Salisbury Cathedral in England. It's got the, the tallest uh, medieval uh, cathedral spire in Europe. The Indian philosopher, philosopher Vishal Mangawadi says that the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology, nurtured by the church. The Bible created and underpinned the scientific outlook. That, historically speaking, is the, the origins of scientific, in, in our kind of um, scientific revolution way. But the more that historians of science have looked into the, you know, the scientific revolution, the more that they've seen that there's not this sort of step phase change from the medieval dark ages where knowledge and, and science was kind of repressed by the church and so on, and then the flowering of the, the, the scientific revolution. They see that the roots of the scientific revolution were actually grown in the medieval church. Most ancient cultures had worldviews that were not conducive to science. For example, according to pantheistic worldviews, the natural world is an illusion. Anyway, according to, say, Greek polytheism, the natural world is governed by unreliable, finite gods who are often at odds with one another and who ultimately trace their own origins to primeval chaos as the, the root of reality being chaotic. That's not a worldview conducive to thinking, oh yeah, I'll do some scientific investigation on how the world, you know, reliably, regularly kind of works. Philosopher of science Stephen C. Mayer recounts how the ancient Greek philosophers thought that nature reflected an underlying order, some of them, 
but assumed that they could deduce how nature ought to behave from first principles based upon only superficial observation of natural phenomena or without observing nature at all. So this is why the, you know, the ancient Greek thinkers, some of them sit down in their ancient Greek equivalent of an armchair and think, you know, I wonder how planets move. Well, if I were making them, you know, I'd make them go in circles because, like, circles are perfect, aren't they? So planets must go in circles. It, it wouldn't really have crossed the ancient Greek mind to you know, sit up late at night with a notebook, <laughs> taking data and trying to get some empirical evidence and then formulating some theories and then testing that again. It's just like, oh, just think about it. Meyer explains that modern science was specifically inspired by the conviction that the universe is the product of a rational mind, on the one hand, uh, who designed the human mind to understand it is another significant factor. Plantinga again says, modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism. It's a shining example of the powers of reason which God has created us with. It's a spectacular display of the image of God in us human beings. So, Christians are committed to taking science and the deliverances of contemporary science with their utmost seriousness because it's an outworking of the image of God in humanity. Back to Salisbury Cathedral again. Salisbury Cathedral has what is believed to be the oldest, or at least one of the oldest, medieval clocks dating from around 1386, it says on the plaque. Seems fairly specific. <laughs> uh, it's thought to be the oldest working clock in the world. It's an example of the way in which the church fostered science, leading-edge technology, and so on. The church has always been interested in leading-edge um, IT technology in particular. Medieval cathedrals had full-colour display units, stained-glass windows. They, they, had, they had surround sound. Stereophonic, not only stereophonic, but stereophonic surround sound. Put choir boys up in the roof space, different places around the place to get your stereophonic surround sound sound system. Um, polyphonic music, invented by the, uh, you know, it's using um, developments in culture and science, uh, and you know the, the architectural design of how we have a building that you know a voice can reach within it and so on. Uh, sociologist of science, Steve Fuller, says that while I cannot honestly say that I believe in a divine personal creator, no plausible alternative has yet been offered to justify the pursuit of science as a search for the ultimate systematic understanding of reality. Atheism as a, a positive doctrine has done precious little for science. He says science makes sense only if there is an overall design to nature that we are especially well equipped to fathom, even though most of it has little bearing on our day-to-day -day animal survival. He says, humanity's creation in the image of God provides the clearest historical rationale for this rather specialised expenditure of effort associated with science. Isn't that fascinating? So, Science makes these philosophical assumptions 
and it makes philosophical assumptions that are actually can be warranted or justified within the context of a theistic worldview. That's not surprising because these are the philosophical assumptions that science grew out of, right? It assumes that the natural world exhibits a rational order, that the human mind is at least to a fair degree able to understand the rational order displayed by the natural world, that human cognitive and sensory faculties are, generally speaking, reliable, that the rational order displayed by the natural world cannot necessarily be just deduced from first principles, so observation and experiment are useful in science, that there are knowable objective values of truth and goodness and beauty. And you might be thinking to yourself, yeah, I can see the truth thing, but goodness, beauty, remember what I said about my maths is more beautiful than yours. It's more elegant. It's more, uh, it's more beautiful. A goodness, um, did you reliably report the results of your experiment when you wrote it up in the paper, or did you fudge it? Because I'm going to have to rely upon, because I can't, you know, redo all of the experiments that I reference in my work. The practice of science as a sociological institution depends upon moral values and uh, holding people accountable for failing to toe the line with respect to certain moral values and so on. And a worldview that would say, oh, that's on the wrong side of the fact-value divide, for example, might actually undermine the practice of science, yeah? Now there are two major sources of apparent conflict between science and theology, and those boil down to one, bad readings of scripture, and two, bad philosophies of science. I won't have very much to say on bad readings of scripture, because that'll take us too far afield from a focus on theism and science, but let me just quote Augustine, from his book, The Literal Meaning of Genesis, um, by which he, of course, meant the, the interpretation of Genesis according to the literary genre that it is, and that, of course, is much discussed even these days, but he didn't mean, wouldn't mean literal necessarily, he meant the, the correct literary interpretation of Genesis. But he said this, he said, in matters that are so obscure and far beyond our vision, we may find in Holy Scripture passages which can be interpreted in very different ways without prejudice to the faith that we have received. In such cases, we should not rush in headlong and so firmly take our stand on one side that if further progress in the search for truth justly undermines this position that we've adopted, we too fall with it. Good advice to bear in mind. Turning to bad philosophers of science, I want to go through four and then we'll stop again. Verificationism, scientism, which we've talked a little bit about already, naturalism, which we've talked about already, and methodological naturalism, and the kind of distinction between those last two. So starting with verificationism, the verification principle advanced by the so-called logical positivist movement in the 1930s said that the meaning of any statement that's not just true by definition, like a square has four sides, right, depends on its ability to be empirically verified, at least in principle. So uh, the moon is made of cheese. It's, it may be silly, but it's a meaningful statement because at least in principle, you know, I could 
test it were I to find myself on the moon with a plate and a knife. Yeah. <laughs> Some crackers. Wallace and Gromit's uh, first Wallace and Gromit adventure, go to the moon. Very funny. Um, I.e. coffee exists is a meaningful statement because you can, at least in principle, verify this by seeing, touching, smelling, tasting the coffee. But God exists, or indeed note, God does not exist, is a meaningless, meaningless statement because you can't, supposedly can't, verify God's existence. So A.J. Eyre, who popularised this in the UK, uh, said that God is a metaphysical term, and if God is a metaphysical term, then it can't even be probable that a God exists. For to say that God exists is to make a metaphysical utterance which cannot be either true or false. If a putative proposition fails to satisfy the verification principle, and is not a tautology, not true by definition, it is metaphysical, and being metaphysical, it's neither true nor false, but literally senseless. Think back to the problem that we had with scientism, and you might start seeing the problem with this and the relationship between them. Well, first of all, although one cannot directly verify God's existence by, say, tasting God, literally, smelling God, literally, and so on, several arguments for theism can be framed using the very same sort of inductive verification type arguments used within science. So Basil Mitchell in his The Justification of Religious Belief pointed out that the logical positivist movement started as an attempt to make this clear demarcation between science and common sense on the one hand and metaphysics and theology, ooh, ooh, theology on the other. But work in the philosophy of science convinced people that what the logical positivists had said about science was not true. And by the time the philosophers of science had developed and amplified their accounts of how rationality works in science, people discovered that similar accounts applied equally well to the areas which they had previously sought to exclude, namely theology and metaphysics. So you can't make this distinction line. Verificationism didn't shoulder the burden of proof needed to overturn atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen again, his common sense observation that well, most claims that people make are not scientific, yet they can for all that be true or false. So they must be meaningful if you can judge them as true or false. But most importantly, centrally, verificationism, like scientism, contradicted itself. The verification principle is neither true by definition, nor something that can be empirically verified. Even A.J. Eyre ended up rejecting verificationism in the end. As William Lane Craig says, the collapse of verificationism during the second half of the 20th century, news which has yet to reach the ears of some of the new atheists, by the way, was undoubtedly the most interesting, imp most important philosophical event of the century. Its demise brought about a resurgence of metaphysics, along with other traditional problems of philosophy that had been hitherto suppressed. And accompanying this resurgence in philosophy and metaphysics has come something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance in Christian philosophy. Uh, scientism we've talked a little bit about, but um, these quotes from Rosenberg and Atkins we, we've had earlier. Um, 
scientism is really just applying verificationism to epistemology rather than to meaning. Supplying verificationism to epistemology rather than meaning, you get scientism. Setting up science as the only reliable or perhaps the most reliable pathway to rational belief and knowledge. But like scientism, verificationism, like verificationism, scientism assumes the existence of a firm distinction or line of demarcation between science and philosophy in order to reject philosophy as a way of knowing and so exclude metaphysics from science. But as we've seen, the very roots of science are metaphysical. Science depends upon and raises metaphysical issues. It is inextricably linked to metaphysics. As Francis J. Beckwith uh, reports, today the overwhelming consensus in philosophy of science is that demarcation criteria are doomed to failure. In other words, science is and always has been really natural philosophy. Trying to demarcate, to separate science from philosophy leads to problems for science. So we had uh, earlier, just a reminder, this scientific demand, the application of the positivist verification rule, turning that into a rule about knowledge and you get scientism. And similarly, it's self-contradictory in just the same way and it generates an infinite regress and it, it can't stand up to obvious counterexamples. That was really Kyle Nielsen's point. Um, naturalism and methodological naturalism then would pause again. So, the astronomer Carl Sagan famously said at the beginning of the original version of the Cosmos TV series, the cosmos is all there ever was, is, or shall be. Um, this is a statement of naturalism by a scientist. But we should bear in mind the fact that naturalism is a metaphysical position. It's not a scientific position that he's expressing here. Not everything a scientist says is scientific, right? Just as not everything I say is philosophical. <laughs> uh, science is not an inherently naturalistic enterprise, as shown by its Christian origins. A scientific description or explanation that doesn't mention God does not thereby deny God's existence or contradict theism. You know, when Newton formulated the expression of the, the rule of gravitational attraction. He didn't say, oh, now we know. We don't need God to explain why things fall. Well, no, but you don't need to mention God in explaining why things fall in science, but that doesn't mean that God's not actually involved because there are second order questions like, why is there any physical matter at all to be a ball falling towards a gravity well? Why does that, why do those things, why do they behave regularly from moment to moment according to the same mathematically expressible law? Why isn't reality just a chaos that's unreliable at all? Those are philosophical questions which you can give good theistic answers to. Any explanation of empirical data X in terms of uh, a material reality Y always leaves open philosophical questions such as, well, yeah, but why does Y exist? And is the existence of Y something that is intended or unintended? Like, uh, okay, there, there, are, there are atoms because there was a big bang. 
But why was there a Big Bang? And was the Big Bang intended or not? Now, methodological naturalism, as the US National Academy of Sciences says, the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. By which I think they mean the statements of natural science, because this is going to cause huge problems for the social sciences and the applied sciences. <sighs> if you can't, you must only invoke natural things and processes. Um, you'd have to make sure that, you know, no mind-body dualist is allowed to do forensic science because they think it, it was a murder rather than an accident and they explain why the body in the lab is dead by reference to the intentional action of a mind and they don't think that that mind just is someone's brain so now their description of what happened is not scientific. Mm -hmm. Difficulties. But anyway, the statements of science must invoke only natural things and processes. In other words, although science doesn't deny the existence of anything supernatural, we're not expressing metaphysical naturalism here. Science must never mention anything supernatural. That dust is verboten. We must not mention anything supernatural within science. But why? Is this a good rule to adopt? And why? Well, just very briefly, here's a reflection from an atheist philosopher of science, Bradley Monton. And there are others that I could quote it, other atheist philosophers and scientists, indeed, who say very much the same thing. Monton says, if science really is permanently committed to methodological naturalism, well, it follows that the aim, the purpose of science, is not generating true theories. Instead, the aim of science would be something like generating the best theories that can be formulated subject to the restriction that the theories are naturalistic. So, do you want science to be a search for the best naturalistic explanation of things, or do you want science to be a search for the true explanation of things? And do you want to kind of decide that in advance of looking at any data? So, Monton says, science is better off without being shackled to methodological naturalism. 